So if I give you the option between sweet and savory, how many of you prefer sweet over savory? Straw, uh, straw poll, yeah. Not many, wow, okay. Or either you just kind of, are you ashamed? Is that what it is? Don't be ashamed. That's me. How many salty people do we have here? Okay, yeah. I prefer sweets, but my wife Ashley is a savory lover. I um, just illustrate this. I once made her a birthday cake out of pickle jars stacked in a circle around bags of fancy pork rinds and chips and popcorn. And these weren't just pickled cucumbers. I'm talking about green beans, pickled asparagus, pickled okra, which is awesome uh, and a little weird, but still awesome. And this was all the exotic stuff, right? No, no sweet pickles. Didn't want to confuse anything. And it may have been her favorite birthday cake ever. I like to think that it was. You can have to ask her later to see if it was. But isn't it interesting, that, you know, when we talk about sweet, savory, we're talking about two chemical compounds, aren't we? We're talking about sucralose as one form of, of sweetness and sodium chloride in salt, many different forms of salt. These are, uh, you know, probably our most important ingredients, right, if we want things to taste good. And if you get the amounts wrong in either direction, too little, too much, you know, it matters, right? Uh, when we have, uh, when Miss Heather, our operations director, when she makes lemonade for Village Wrench every first Saturday, the neighborhood kids actually have a lot of opinions about the appropriate level of sweetness to lemonade, and they let her know. So she has to tell them, no, we're not going to double the recipe here for, uh, for this. But if you lived in ancient Israel, this wouldn't really be a choice. Uh, yes, they had natural honey if they could harvest it and find it. They didn't have beekeepers. Um, and they also made a kind of grape syrup as sweetener, but it wasn't as nearly as sweet as the, what we're used to today. But savory won the day for them. Savory won the day. Salt had many uses beyond enhancing flavor and preserving food. And it was also, we'll find out, in a very important symbol for Israel. Together with this metaphor of light, in a world that's 2,000 years away from electricity or the incandescent bulb, right? Jesus was pulling on these powerful, you know, some really powerful and really much deeper symbols, much deeper symbolism here in Matthew 5 than we might even imagine. There's a lot here, and that's what I want us to explore this morning, go a little bit deeper. There's a good chance you've heard a sermon on salt and light before, so um, I want to say some of the same things, and I also want to add a little bit to that. So let's back up a little bit. Early in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And, and again, I'm putting this into context. This is one sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And just as an aside... I want to present something that one of Jesus' contemporaries said. How many of you have heard of Pliny? Okay. Pliny the Elder, there's also Pliny the Younger. But Pliny the Elder, he was this Roman naturalist. He was a philosopher, and he happened to be the author of the first encyclopedia. He lived in the empire, as I said, when Jesus did. And he famously said this. He said, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. So you get a sense of the place of, of salt and even light, you know, and Jesus is pulling on powerful metaphors. But before these, uh, you know, evocative you are statements that Jesus makes, before he pronounces this weighty calling for his disciples, he actually, again, we need to back up. He begins with a series of familiar blessings that we call the Beatitudes, assuring them that the life ahead of them as salt and light, should they continue to follow him, it's going to bring lasting rewards 
and deeper comfort even from their poverty or especially in their poverty and their mourning and their meekness and their persecution that they face. Jesus is actually grounding these you are statements, these distinctions. He's really grounding the whole sermon on this foundation of blessing, on the counterintuitive promise of blessing for those who will follow him in a dark and difficult world. So he's setting it up. We need to be mindful of that before we, we get into these you are statements. But he adds something to the end of these blessings, sort of a little transition here. It's verse 12. You don't have it in the reading today. And I find this really particularly compelling. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's an important setup. This, I think, is our first clue about the meaning of the metaphors Jesus is using. The prophets of Israel, if you know, these were the people who told the inconvenient but essential truth, while God's people were just sort of spoiling in the darkness of their rebellion. They were the salt. They reminded this chosen people of their high calling to flavor the world, to be distinctive with a perpetual, with an embodied and worshipful witness to the whole world, to the one, a witness of their worship to the one true God. So Jesus is telling his own disciples He's connecting them up with the prophets. He's telling his own disciples that it is better to suffer with the salty prophets than to live your life believing and perpetuating the bland, convenient, unmaking lie of the age. The idolatrous lie of every age that permeates just as subtly as the spoiling forces that make food toxic, inedible, and not nourishing. So he's linking them up. And I think we could safely say that Jesus' point in this for his disciples is about their presence as influence. Not the possibility for their influence, but the inevitability of it. You are the light. You are the salt. The inevitability of it in one direction or the other, actually. It's not just about how they should influence others, but that they are actually an influence, a presence like it or not. They are salt with flavor or not. They are light that shines or that is hidden under a bushel, under a basket. So let's look at verse 13. I've already said some of it. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. A little bit of science. I'm not a science person. I I clearly got this from someone else. I've done no experiments, you know, to to yield this information. But, you know, the carrier substance of salt, uh, particularly what would have been mined as crystals or mostly gathered as a kind of dust uh, at the Dead Sea, this could remain visible, actually. You would see the salt, so to speak, on a side of meat or as you sprinkle it into dough. But the actual sodium chloride in that carrier, that sediment, that dust, it could already be completely dissipated. Even though sodium chloride, saltiness, is stable, it's soluble. It could already be cooked out, it could be evaporated. You know, it could be washed out, leaving only this, the powdery sediment and the grit. 
It could look like salt, but not actually have the function. You could try to apply it again, but it's used up. That's what Jesus is speaking to. And interestingly, the same Greek word here for lost its taste is moreno. That's also translated become foolish. A wise thing, become foolish. Moreno, think moron, if you will. Jesus wouldn't call anybody a moron, but he was saying it's a foolishness that's come in in the place of wisdom. The wisdom's lost. So let's just take salt a little deeper. I'm going to spend a little more time on salt than light. There's a story in the Jewish Talmud, which the the Talmud was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. All of the traditions and teachings were oral, and when you had the the temple, it was much easier to teach, but they needed to write it down because they were displaced. The temple had been destroyed. And so, uh, about a, uh, you know, there's a story about a first century rabbi named Yehoshua who is debating some of the elders of Athens. And uh, these, these actually might be the same part of the same group that Paul was debating in Acts 17, elders of Athens. And they asked him a bunch of strange and loaded questions, such as, if a chick dies in the egg, from where does its soul escape? Right? And how do you harvest a field of knives? They were using actually some, that sounds absurd, but they were actually leaning into some metaphors of the time, some stark ones to, to criticize, to evaluate Judaism. Um, they also asked him this, how do you preserve spoiled salt? And his answer was equally, if not more, strange. He said, we use the afterbirth of a mule, which is gross, but also absurd. Why? And it's his point that it's absurd. A mule is sterile. There is no afterbirth of a mule. You can't do it. There's no possibility of preserving spoiled salt, of making it salty again is what he's saying. It's just not salt anymore without, well, the saltiness. And here's the really intriguing thing that, you know, isn't obvious in the Scriptures, but is some background here. These, these elders of Athens, many of them who were sympathetic to some degree to Judaism, or at least to a version of Judaism, they were trying to make a point about the law when they were talking about salt. They viewed the Torah as salt that was spoiled, that it was obsolete, it was irrelevant to an increasingly Hellenized world, it was in need of an update or an overhaul if it was going to appeal to their contemporary world. Obviously, Yehoshua disagreed with this quite strongly and vividly. So, salt, the law, think about this. We should find it really interesting that only four verses later, Jesus has some important things to say to his disciples, the salt of the earth, about the preservation and the perpetuation of the law. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I've not come to abolish it, change it, reduce it. I've come to fulfill them. And the point he's making fundamentally is that the law and the prophets, which let's just call it the singular history, the story, the background of a holy God who's intent on redeeming the world from sin and death, this story, this history, this heritage is going to go forward. It's going to be perpetuated, not only in the personal and relational, but the corporate lives of these disciples to whom Jesus is, te- uh, is talking right here. 
as they learn to depend on and follow him, as they take that which has been fulfilled at the pinnacle of history in Christ and they take it forward as their method and their message and their ministry. They aren't going to replace Israel. They are just going to resume Israel's vocation, their calling. The law isn't passing away. It's being renewed in Jesus' singular relationship to it, which is what? That he fulfilled it for us and for Israel. That he brought it to its head in himself. Everything that Israel's unique story tells us about the world's alienation from God and, and his relentless love All of that's still in effect. The story goes on. It's still their reality, and it's still our reality. God's will and God's ways, that's what we could call the law, the expectation, the call of God. God's will, His ways, they are still the grain of the universe. We renew that call even when we say the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus alone provides our way into that way, into our sto- that story as it becomes our own story. He is the one, you might say, doing for Israel and for us what they and we could not and cannot do for ourselves. The fulfillment. He's bringing the law's purpose. He's bringing the law's meaning to a head in his own life and calling and that he is then passing along to them. So he says not one tiniest Hebrew letter, the yod, Greek iota, not one tiny bit of punctuation need be or can be removed from God's determination to do what? Through the law, and through this message, through this history, to bring justice and holiness and healing, salt and light into the world through the Messiah and the people he calls. Not surprisingly, Jesus Turns up the heat a little bit in verse 20, and he says this, For I tell you, and remember, he's still talking to his disciples here, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about going away to heaven one day. He's talking about you cannot come into this understanding and this story and into what God is doing in the world, in and through me, unless something different happens here. Some different way of being in the world as God's people. And he's not trying to make better ceremonialists out of them. He's not making better moralists out of them. He's calling them to more than a washed out, basket covered version of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees are perpetuating. It ain't very salty and it ain't very bright. He has fulfilled the law, Jesus has. He's fulfilled the story and he's brought it to the whole world to know it and benefit from it. And here's where this brings us. Over and over again in his ministry, we see Jesus living out the message that the will of God and the ways of God, they really are good to people. They really are good for people. They are good for a world that left to its own ingredients, its own sense, you know, attempt at preservation, its own dim light is not good for people. The beginning of our worship, we say what we call the acclamation. And next week, we're going to walk through our whole liturgy and talk about why and what we say, uh, you know, what we say and why we say it. But this acclamation during the season of Epiphany, it's the proclamation of Isaiah 49, 6. It says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And I want want to go a little deeper around that a little bit because I think it's important. 
for where we are uh, in, this, in what Jesus is saying. Listen to how this verse is framed in Isaiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant here is Jesus. We know from all of what Isaiah has to say, we even call him the suffering servant. The servant is Jesus. And how is it that it's too light a thing? It might be obvious to you. How is it that it's too light a thing? Because as far back as Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus, the Lord is actually declaring that it's not enough to just enlighten the in-group and restore the people of Israel. Yahweh's God, Yahweh God's purpose is what? His salvation, it's for the nations, for the whole earth. It's salt and light for the whole earth. And anything less, any narrowed focus would be a lightweight version of a profoundly weighty call. So let me just come full circle. Um, two weeks ago, I talked about the church in these terms. We should be better, but we're not. The call is for us to be salt and light to our world and our time, but we fall short quite often. My point was not to lower our expectations uh, of the church or to diminish the singular importance of the church that, after all, Jesus himself gathered and commissioned. And I was also not making excuses for the church's failings, certainly not for the church's abuses if, if you've experienced them, just because we're human and we're contingent. But here was my main point, and I want to make it again in this context. The primary difference between the church's focus and the prevailing quest for the good life, as you might call it, uh, is you know, society's quest for that. The, the difference is fundamentally the recognition that we know we need help from without, from beyond, to be who we truly are. We are dependent. We certainly are. We are contingent. We know that without Jesus, we're at best just another institution or gathering or club that will fail the people we are called to serve. We'll fail at worship. We'll fail at witness. And we'll narrow the frame. We'll wash out the flavor. We'll cover the lamp. But when in our right minds, the mind of Christ, as Paul says in our first Corinthians reading today, but also as he says in the Philippians, the humility of Christ, the mind of Christ. When we're in our right minds, we are the ones who take on the very same posture as our Lord in the world and for the world. Because guess what? It's not us and them, but us for them. You are the light of the world. He said, to them and to us, you are the salt of the earth. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 still rings true. I want to read it to you. You'll probably be really familiar with this part. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay, something fragile to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he, he talks about being afflicted and, you know, it almost echoes the things that Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. But he says this. For what, before that, this is how he sets this up. Listen, verse 5, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. Mark also records these words in his gospel. Um, But he adds something. It's interesting. It's a great little point to head toward the end. Chapter 9, Mark, verse 50, he adds, Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. These are not two separate things. These are things that belong together. It may sound like he's saying two different things. He's not because in ancient Israel, salt was actually a symbol of covenant, of peace, of reconciliation. It was an ingredient actually physically used in making one. Numbers 9.19 reads, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. In other words, by the way, God gives us the offerings that we give to Him. And He says, It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. It's a covenant. Second Chronicles says, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? He made peace. He made provision. And then Leviticus 2.13, which, you know, whew, Leviticus, right? We, know, we don't ever really want to spend too much time there. But he said this. He says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. It's peace. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. To have salt among yourselves, as Jesus said, is actually meant to make peace. To enter into a covenant with one another and to honor it. To be a community of peace. You might even say that the ingredient that we need and the ingredient that we offer the world is peace that we have among ourselves. And I know that's not what the church has done a lot through history and is even doing today. But this is part of the call. An ingredient of peace, of belonging, of shalom, of order, of, a way, of, of the ability to just live. It's a kind of rest in God's promises of what? Our shared destiny and of our shared gift that He has made possible to us. And I think it comes to this. We are the embodied peace that the world needs. When we talk about salt, it isn't just about a message. It's certainly not just about commands or even a lifestyle except insofar as it is about giving the world something it desperately needs, which is peace, a place to live and to be. We are the people in covenant with God and one another who have peace with God. We're living at the crossroads of heaven and earth in the joy of the Lord. And we're returning to an altar, the table of a new covenant, where our peace with God is the very power on which we depend. That's the salt. That's the light on which the world depends, even if they don't know it yet. This is our witness. And still, just as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, it is grounded in blessings. The blessings that Jesus proclaims over those who would follow him. It can't be washed out by what we suffer. It shouldn't be. 
It can't be shrouded by it. It can't be washed out into a moralistic or a political agenda that's impersonal and trying to fearfully and even coercively somehow grab the wheel of history from competing forces. That's not what peace is. It doesn't mean we don't contend for what we care for, what we know is right and good and true. It means that we do so with a kind of peace that passes understanding that will guard your hearts and your minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. What we have is a better way if we will receive it. That's how early Christianity described itself, a way, the way. It's what we've been given and called to, called to give away. It's a way that leads to peace, to life, the life of the whole world, to which Jesus offers a covenant. And bread and wine, as we experience it today, in his own body and blood, he's giving us as an offering to the world as well peace. He's extending his covenant to the world through you because you are the salt of the earth. Do you believe it? Lord, we pray that you help us again to believe it. We get distracted. We get watered down and washed out. We get really um, intent on keeping the light to ourselves. But God, help us. We thank you for a service that reminds us that we are forgiven and that we are empowered. And we receive it again today in your will and your love and your kindness and in your peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.